don't give it to your friends and family to read. <laughs> Just mm. try and get it in the hands of someone who knows, like a publishing professional or a, a teacher, a writing teacher, a creative writing teacher, another author, if you can get a mentorship or if you can pay for a manuscript assessment. And do that when you've got the book to the point where you think you can't do anything else with it. You've done several drafts and you just think, I can't physically do anything more. I need somebody else's opinion on this. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. This week's guest is Kel Woods, an Australian debut author of the fabulous After the Forest. Kel is an Australian historical fantasy author who lives near the sea with her husband, two sons, and the most beautiful black cat in the realm. Kel studied English literature, creative writing, and librarianship so she could always be surrounded by stories. She's worked in libraries for the past 12 years, all the while writing about made-up and not-so-made-up places people, and things you might remember from the fairy tales that you read as a child. Her debut novel, After the Forest, will be published simultaneously by Tor Books in the US, Titan Books in the UK, and Harper Voyager in Australia and New Zealand in October this year, with the second untitled novel coming late in 2024. After the Forest is an absolutely beautiful book that I just devoured when I was sent an early copy of it. It's probably not in the usual genre that I read. I don't tend to read kind of fantasy or fairy tale books, but I had heard so much about it. And Kel is uh, a follower of the podcast and I've connected with her on Instagram and I really wanted to see what the book was about. So I started in on it and was just absolutely mesmerized by the beautiful writing and the way that Kel has taken a very familiar tale of Hansel and Gretel and made it into a completely new story. So she takes it into the future when Hansel and Gretel are older and the main character is Gretel. But we're going to hear more about that from Kel as I chat to her over the course of the interview. So the book is set in the Black Forest of Württemberg during the mid-17th century, and it's a dark, compelling and enchanting meld of love story fairy tale, magic and history that explores the repercussions of a childhood filled with magic and how happily ever after isn't always so happy. It's going to be a real pleasure to chat to Kel today on the podcast about After the Forest and I highly recommend this book to anybody out there who wants to read something that is beautifully written, will transport you to another place and time, remind you of that beautiful magical world of the fairy tales that you loved as a child but also really make you think about Things like how people are treated when they're different, how our society as a whole treats outsiders and how that can really spur those individuals on to standing up for themselves and finding their place in the world. So let's get on now and chat to Kel Woods about After the Forest. 
Kel, thank you for coming on the podcast, Rights for Women. It's such a pleasure to chat to you about After the Forest, which I've just told everybody in the intro that I absolutely loved and I can't wait to talk to you about it. So congratulations because it's absolutely fantastic debut. Oh, thanks so much, Pam. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Oh, it's lovely to have you. <laughs> Kel, I'm really interested in your kind of background with writing and how you got to the point where you are. Before we actually get to talking about the book, could you tell us a little bit about your writing history and when you realised that you wanted to be a writer and how that passion developed for you? Sure. I'm one of those annoying people and probably boring people that say, oh, I always wanted to be a writer since I was a little kid and I am one of them. I remember being little and I had to do some sort of like little quiz, you know how they give kids like a little questionnaire and they have to answer all their favourite things. And I wrote, I found it recently and and it said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, an author or a vet of large animals. <laughs> I like the specificity there. And to be large animals. <laughs> large animals. Because I was horse mad. So I, I, it, it all makes sense. And I still do love horses. But yeah, so I always wanted to be a writer. And I was always writing stories and poems and just generally nerdy and good at spelling one of those kids always reading books that were way too grown up for me and then I that that continued into high school and I loved English and did all the advanced stuff and studied I loved it and then went to uni and I did English literature and creative writing I did a double major and an arts degree which I really loved but was a bit useless I ended up studying information and libraries as well so that I could work in that industry and because yeah. I really wanted a job that would complement writing because I always wanted to write and my dream was always to have something published. So um, did you keep, you did that degree, were you writing through your teens and into your adulthood? Is writing something that you've always done? Yeah, I was always writing terrible yeah. fan fiction type things when I was a teenager based on movies I loved or books I loved. But I think you have to do that. That's how you learn, isn't it? I think Yeah, absolutely. That. Yeah, and then I did a few, I remember doing a few sort of very like epic high fantasy stories in my early 20s that never really got finished because I had children and I went back to uni and studied some more. And then really I got to that point in my life, I think I turned 30 or I was in that kind of age where my kids got a little bit older and I said to myself, what did I really want to do? What do I really want to do? had that moment and and I really want to write so yeah that's when I really thought I'm going to write something completely new and really try and finish it this time and really have a go and that was how I started working on After the Forest. Brilliant. Yeah. Was it a long-term sort of project for you Kel After the Forest? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was it took me a long time mostly because I would stop and start because I had young children and I went back to uni and and we were building houses and moving and all that life sort of stuff. Mm. So it, it was, I ended up, I put it away a few times because I found it was not making, I was unhappy and cranky because I was getting, how you get interrupted a lot when you have young children. And I struggled a bit with feeling annoyed, not at the kids, just generally annoyed. Yeah. Cause like, I just, when I start writing, I get a, I just, I don't know, probably the same, you lose yourself in the project. And I kept getting ripped out of it mentally. So I did put it down and step away from it quite a few times. It was years that I worked on it, but if you look at the amount of time that I spent, it was much less, probably three years, something right. like that. Yeah. Right. And then I actually read 
Bitter Greens by Kate Forsyth and went, oh, that's an amazing book. That's the kind of book I want to write. So I started going, Kate, yeah. And like then I realized that Kate teaches. And so I was like, this is the person that I need to go and do. Because I was doing classes at the Australian Writers' Centre and I was always going to workshops and classes that that whole time and always working on it. And then, yeah, met up with Kate did some classes with her. She's an amazing teacher. Yeah, right? I've done a course with her. I think I did a workshop at the Romance Writers of Australia one year with her. Yeah. And yeah. I follow a lot of her stuff online and that she's brilliant, fantastic teacher and so amazing. knowledgeable. Yeah. Yeah. And so generous and kind yeah. as well. So I ended up going on a retreat with Kate as well. And then while I was on the retreat, she mentioned that she does one mentorship a year through the ASA that it's highly competitive and that's how you can get a mentorship with her. And I was sitting there thinking, I'm going to get that mentorship. That's mine. I was like, I really want that power. And I got it. I applied for it and I got it. And then I had the chance for Kate to do a structural edit on my manuscript and she helped me. She did about three edits. She was very generous with me. She liked the book and she thought mm. it had legs. So she was, yeah, she was instrumental. I would, I feel like it was such a invaluable opportunity to have her looking over my work and telling me how bad it was <laughs> and then telling me how to fix it oh yeah. fantastic had that you is. had you finished the draft Kel, when you started that mentorship with oh, Kate? Uh, yes I think I had I think I had a shocking first draft some parts of it had been, like the beginning of the book, I remember had been, I had edited and rewritten set over and over again. And I was getting to that point where I wasn't getting anywhere with it because I kept going back to the beginning and trying to perfect everything. So the beginning of the book would have been in better shape than the end. It may not have even had an end. I think I just needed to send them maybe the first few chapters and a synopsis and a cover letter and a little bit about myself and that. And I think I had to give them the entire book. I really can't remember now. Mm -hmm. So that that was amazing. I think the ASA is still doing that mentorship. I think they do, right? yeah. And I think Writing New South Wales also run mentorships. So, yeah. yeah. And so would you say that that was a really important part in your sort of path to publication? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if I couldn't have gotten Kate, because it was competitive and I know that probably there were more people than me who wanted her to mentor them because she's great. I probably would have ended up saving my pennies and paying for someone to do a manuscript assessment on the book. Yeah. Because by that point, I realized that I need you, I needed someone more knowledgeable than me and yeah. someone who knew about structure and how to make the story tight and good and mm -hmm. page turning. I think that's where you get that feedback is when a professional gives you that kind of assessment yeah. or an author like Kate. So I think they are, yeah. Crucial, amazing. Mm. And I would have paid. I would have saved up and paid. I would, yeah, I would have done that gladly to yeah. get that back. And did you, so after you've worked through that with Kate and you obviously continued revising it and all that sort of thing, mm. and you remember the point at which you thought, or did you get to a point where you thought, yes, it's ready. I'm ready to send it out? No, I don't think I was ever ready to send it out. We got it to a point where Kate was happy with it and I think we both knew there was nothing more really that I could do with it. I think I did three write, three rewrites with Kate. She was incredibly generous. And then she was like, okay, it's there. It's ready. I think you should start submitting it. I was so terrified. I don't think I ever felt, oh, okay, it's perfect. And I even now don't think it's perfect. I'm too scared to look at the finished book now. Once it's finished, yeah, that's it. You never look at it again. No, I can't even look at it because I'm like, there's going to be something that I, I've, I've realized that you could tinker on a book forever. 
couldn't you? Just Absolutely. Yeah. But I, had, but I had to learn that before. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, no, I'm going to make it perfect. I'm going to get it perfect and killing myself. And it's, that doesn't, that's not how it works. Because you, you can go back over and find a word that you were happy with six months ago and then suddenly you're not yeah. as well. Like you change too. You've got so, to get yeah. to that point, don't you, where it's just, okay, enough. Got to go. Done. Yeah, it's got to go. We weren't there. I, I knew that I, there were probably things that weren't working in the book, but Kate felt that it was ready enough that we could start sending it out. Kate recommended that I look for an agent because the book isn't set in Australia because it's set in Germany and it's fantasy. It was something that might be worth looking into pitching it overseas. So we went that way with it. And then I did look at Australian agents. There, it was all during COVID. This was all in 2020. Yeah. A lot of agencies weren't even open for submissions. I don't think any Australian agents were interested in fantasy. Sydney's fantasy was just like no fantasy. And I was like, I can't. That's, that sort of cuts me out because there's magic and all sorts yeah. of it's There was only, I think, one who was interested and I got some amazing feedback from her, but she wasn't, I wasn't right for her. She didn't take me on. And so then I started looking at overseas agents. And then, I, yeah, I was pitching to agents in all in the US and the UK. And I think it was my first or second round of pitching, my agent got back to me and said, can you send me the full manuscript? Mm. Now, the most exciting moment. Nerve-wracking too. <laughs> yeah, that's what you want. And oh my God. So yeah, sent her the manuscript. She asked for it the same day. So I sent that to oh. her on Sunday night and she received that Sunday morning in the UK. And then when I got to work, on Monday morning, I quickly checked my email before I started work and she had said, can you send me the full thing? So she asked for it Sunday night. So wow. she kind of got into it on that. And it was a Sunday too. I didn't even expect her to look at her inbox that day. So that was a bonus too. And then by Thursday, we were meeting and Zooming and we, and she was offering to represent oh, me. So it happened really far with her. There's several Australian authors in right. her table. And she's worked, she used to be a publisher, so she's very knowledgeable and she's worked in publishing in Australia as well. So she's quite familiar. Yeah. So I didn't, I felt really comfortable Mm. with her because she's, she knows the Australian industry and she's already got some Aussies and she knows what she's doing. She's great. Nice. It's really interesting, isn't it? That whole fantasy thing here. I know that Australia is a much smaller market, so I guess that's probably why, but, and fantasy is a segment of that market, but yeah. Yeah, it's just, I've heard that before from other fantasy writers that the trying to get an agent or even a, a publisher to take on fantasy, a mainstream publisher is really hard here. Mm, it is. I think it, I think with fantasy, you tend to need to get a deal or go well overseas first. And then it tends to be something, then it tends to come into Australia. Mm. Right? Like most fantasy we have here that you see has come from the UK or the part of a Commonwealth, right? So I don't, right. I, Getting it off the ground just here is quite difficult because it's a small market. I get that. I think when Har- HarperCollins do fantasy, so they're, I think they're one of the only ones in Australia, who, and I'm with them. Was it very long after your agent picked you up that she was able to get a publishing deal for you? Uh, yeah, it was because she's very hands-on agent and she edits. So okay. she, Yeah, so when we met, there were two. she asked me, was I willing to do more work on it? And I said yes straight away because I knew like I was still not sure it was 100% right and I said yep 100% ready to do the work and so we got into it she did a structural edit which was amazing and then I spent a few months like maybe 
I don't know now, three, four, five, maybe longer. Not mm. even. I, I don't know. Mm. Maybe just delete that, Pam, because I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I, bit, yeah. So I probably spent some a few months yeah. working on it. Uh, and then she started p- pitching it in the States nice. and the UK. Yeah. Yeah. So when you were doing the structural edits, let's say with the agent, mm. is it about picking up the pace or the tension or kind of fine-tuning those turning points in the story? Because that's pretty close to getting it across the line to a publisher. So what sort of things were you working on with the agent in terms of refining that? That sort of stuff was tight because I'd been mentor- I'd been with Kate and she. Mm. She's really good at the at narrative structure, pacing. So the actual th- those major things didn't change. They were in right. pretty good. So the overall structure was in good nick. It was more things like the the minor characters. Okay, I remember I'd named all of. There's a gang of mercenaries, and I had named them all, and was laboriously trying to make them all their own characters. And it was like, well, there's just too many of them. You don't right. even need to name them, Kel. Let's just streamline this for the reader so it was more of those making Greta less historically accurate because in those times women would have been they wouldn't have spoken up or pushed back it's a really fine line isn't it I struggled with that because I said to Julie my agent I said yeah but it's historical it's historical fantasy and I'm trying to make this it's I've done all the research like it's meant to be historical and she said yeah but you're also writing fantasy you're allowed to make her strong. You're allowed to change that character. And so that was really hard for me because, and you would know that, Pam, like when mm-hmm. it's history, it's like you really want to stick to what was true. And I don't think it would have been easy for women to have pushed back. It just wasn't many options for women to be vocal and strong. So I really had to think about her as a character and I think just things like conflict, like there were some of the relationships between the characters that weren't quite working. Like I think I had to change. Greta was angry at one of the characters for half the book for a reason that really wasn't strong enough. And so I had to go back through and change that relationship, which was really hard actually. Mm. Every single time they spoke to each other, yeah, to be changed. And especially when you've worked on it all that time and done so many different revisions, like it's so hard to actually see that it's great to have somebody else pointing it out for you but then Um, you've got to actually go in and do that work haven't you yourself so yeah yeah and it was all that delicate stuff like dialogue it would be going through and just like change delicately changing the the conversation between two characters to just make her not as yeah so it was delicate kind of stuff yeah if that makes sense it wasn't Mm. being the structure of it was good and the beginning the first like Kate and I worked on the first page because that first page is really where it's gonna that's gonna make a huge difference so I was the beginning was good I think the structure was tight the ending like the, the I find endings really hard even though I've planned and I know where it's going I they are really hard so we I think we we worked on the ending quite a bit too so it went out to quite a few publishers, you were saying, and how long roughly did it take before somebody jumped at it? A few weeks, I think. It was a couple okay. of weeks. That's good. Yeah, it was pretty quick. Mm. It was pretty quick. There was interest in the States. Yeah, Tor came on board pretty early, which was amazing because they were my dream publisher. As far as international, not that I even really dreamed really about international, but as far as that, they were like a dream publisher and, and I, I couldn't believe it when they were interested. 
And then there was one of the other big five publishers over there that was interested as well. So they had a little bit of to and froing, and we had meetings and it was all very surreal. I was in shock the whole time. Looking back, I don't think I even appreciated how amazing it was because I was just so shocked. And so then we ended up going with Tor and they've just been amazing. And then from there, their sub rights were sold through to uh, HarperCollins and then also Titan Books. In okay. The- Brilliant. Yeah. And yeah. we're going to actually get on to the actual book in a minute, but are they mm-hmm. going to have, is that a simultaneous release in all three territories, Kel? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're all, so the UK and the US are coming out on the 3rd of October and then Australia are coming on the 4th. When you put the time differences, it will be almost the same. I reckon there's going to be a lot of champagne popping in Huskisson over that 24-hour period. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're having an event in Husky, so we're having a, lo- a local launch. Excellent. Um, at, yeah, in Huskisson, which will be really nice. And my publisher's coming down to have a chat with me, but we haven't put, we haven't really publicized that yet. That's, it's coming, but yeah, it's going to be exciting. <laughs> and then we, yeah, we're doing a launch in Sydney as well on the 10th. Oh, good. Okay. We'll get on to talking about that. <laughs> so through. Now, the lead into talking about After the Forest, mm. it's obviously based on a fairy tale and you were saying that you were inspired by Kate Forsyth's Bitter Greens, which is mm. about the Grimm brothers and the, the early fairy tales that, that evolved. Mm. Where do you think your love of fairy tales has come from? Ah, uh, look, once again, little, when I was a little kid. So I was the kind of kid that was dressed up as Maid Marian most of the time and pretending to be a princess and with a sword probably as well and being a mermaid at the beach. I was like that kind of kid and I always was a really big reader and I loved fairy tales. I remember reading The Princess and the Goblin, which is a really one of the first sort of fantasy novels. I had a copy of that and I loved it. So, yeah, that was always there. And when I would have been maybe 18, 19, I read Juliet Marillia's Daughter of the Forest. I don't know if you've ever read that. Pam. No. That's oh, beautiful. It's a retelling of the six swans fairy tale. Oh, okay. Where they turn into swans and the sister has to weave with nettles, like really painful. And it's, she can't speak the whole time. It's just amazing. And so Juliet set that in like Dark Ages Island. Wow. And it was this amazing historical fantasy that had this beautiful love story running through it and was oh, like rich and vivid and just made that fairy tale real. And so I loved that book. I've got my original old battered copy on my bookshelf and Juliet is one of my favourite writers. And so then I read Bit of Greens and I was like, oh, yeah, this is the kind of books that I love. Mm. Yeah, this is it. This is it. I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm going to, this is what I'm going to write. And then it was a matter of hunting around for a fairy tale that I could work with and have a go at. And I tried Hansel and Gretel, I think, because I hadn't seen any novels about that. Yeah. I hadn't because they're kids, I guess. It's not as easy to think to imagine them in a novel. So mm. I just made them grown up. Yes. It was such a great move. Honestly, <laughs> I think that would have been an instant appeal for agents and publishers because it's something just so different. And just to transport those characters into the future. Yeah. They're and, adulthood, but still yeah. back in that kind of historical time period. Yeah, it seemed that seemed really fun to me. That was a, a really, oh, this is an interesting idea. This would be fun. And and then thinking about, all right, so if I'm going to make them, if I'm going to make this real and gritty and make them real people, how would they be 
now? What kind of grown-ups would they be? Mm-hmm. Surely you don't just live happily ever after you've been through something like that, especially in, in a time that was strictured and superstitious and about the 30 years war had just finished. So that was a religious war. And mm-hmm. so incredibly um, superstitious, scary, which hunts all the witch trials were happening in that time. And so when you start to think about it in that context, it gets very interesting. It does. Yeah. So if we go any further, you better tell mm. us what the book is actually about. We know it's based on the Hansel and Gretel mm. fairy tale, but give, <laughs> give us the blurb. Yeah, so it's Hansel and Gretel 15 years after, after they were children, and they're still living in their little little village in the Black Forest, and they're still trouble. There's, times are still tough. Greta is a gingerbread baker, and she has this amazing red hair. And because she was the one who pushed the witch, she's viewed with a little bit of superstition and mistrust by the villagers. And Hans is about to lose their house because of a gambling addiction that he has. And he's often on the drink and a bit selfish and reckless and wild. So they, they're dealing with their trauma and the repercussions of that horrific childhood. And they, their father's has passed away. Their mother died right back when they were kids. That's when it all started in the fairy tale. So they're their own little family. And then when dark sort of magic comes back to the forest and men are found dead in the woods, ripped apart by some unknown beast, the stakes start to lift and Greta's oddness and difference becomes even harder for the villagers to ignore as well as her red hair. And, yeah, she might have to start uh, fighting for her life all over again. Kind of, yeah. (laughs) So you really, like, when, as we all know, if you really look at a lot of fairy tales and analyse them almost, there is a lot of darkness in a lot of fairy tales. So I'm guessing that you have taken those elements of that darkness and really pushed them a lot further. Is that your kind of way of operating with that storyline is that yeah yeah I like horror I like dark stuff I like scary stuff and I when I was still working on it when maybe it first got published and I was telling people I've got a book coming out I got a publishing deal and they were like "Uh, what is it about and I'd say oh it's a retelling of Hansel and Gretel and a couple of other fairy tales which wind in it's not just Hansel and Mm. Gretel but the other ones are a bit more subtle they would say oh is it for kids and I was and I'm like it is not for kids yeah not at all It is not. And it's, I think, yeah, it's that kind of darkness. And that's to me is also the history. It's the Mm. fairy tale. The fairy tales are quite dark and scary and gory. But history was really dark and scary and gory too. The witch trials are horrific. They are terrifying. And yeah, so it all just, those two things, the history and the fairy tale pushed together, it did get pretty dark. Mm. Yeah. I had to do content warnings for it and I was like, oh, this is rough. I've got them all. I put gore, blood. Well, I it don't think that's what makes it so gripping. <laughs> Honestly, I I just couldn't put it down. I'd read a bit when I'd go to bed and then I'd pick it up in the morning. I'll just read one more chapter, three pages. And then I'd be like, no, I've got to keep going. And it was like the edge of your seat at point. <laughs> particularly as it continues on, don't want to give any spoilers. I think you've done a fabulous job of blending those different elements. So you've got the kind of fairy tale element and drawing on their childhood stuff. You've got the witch elements coming in. And there's even a sense of, like you were saying, with the, with hands being the gambler and drinker and all that stuff, there's this sort of superimposing as well of like quite contemporary social issues, I think. Was that 
something that just came naturally as you were writing it or? Yeah, I wasn't thinking about contemporary issues at all, really. I was very focused on what life would have been like in that little village. But the thing is, I don't think people are that different to how they would yeah. have been back then. I was thinking, I I get nervous about going to large social events and that's probably how people felt in 1650. Yeah, I don't know, sometimes you look at the, at the past and you think, oh, that people are almost like two-dimensional cutouts. You don't really think of them as having inner lives and, and phobias and mm. fear, trauma and all that stuff, but they would have had it. So, I, yeah, I don't think I ever really thought about it in that way. It probably just came out of my own experiences too, though. Yeah. My, yeah. And I didn't mean to do that, but I guess whenever you write, that does happen, doesn't it? You just you can't help it. It has to come from somewhere. It's inevitable, isn't it? Yeah. So. so with the historical time period, you were saying 1650, Kel, is that the mm-hmm. time period in which the original fairy tale would have been set? No, I think the um, I think Hansel and Gretel is a lot older than that. I think, it, okay. I think those sorts of tales come more from the fourteen hundreds. Right in in Europe, there was a famine. There was really bad famine in that time, and that's when tales about abandoning abandonment and cannibalism, that kind of thing, came through. There are records people did leave their children in the forest. That was a bit of a thing because they couldn't feed them, and also there are instances of cannibalism especially during the 30 years war there was a really bad siege in a little town called Brazac and which isn't really very far from the black forest and there were tales that people were eating each other in, oh. when they were besieged but it didn't take very long for me to dig a little bit deeper into the 30 years war and into that period for it to get really dark it's a pretty it was a pretty horrific period mm. 30 years war was rough there were big armies of mercenaries moving across what is now Germany? It wasn't Germany then, but and just pillaging, slaughtering, taking mm. all the food. So people were. It was famine. Was really, it was really bad. It was yeah. a rough time to be around, and a lot of people died. A lot of civilians yeah. died, and it was a really difficult time. Yeah. So, you, I didn't have to scratch much off the surface to get really dark. And yeah. then combining that across with the witch trials, and then. Which of, of course is highlighting, you know, the the role of women in society mm. and that whole mm. aspect of suspicion and anybody who was slightly different being targeted. Yeah, that kind of feeds directly into the war because generally witch trials would happen historically when there had been times of upheaval or times of famine or war or any kind of upheaval and disruption and darkness in society they would look at witches mm. as a horse because they, they only had religion. They didn't have science. It was all very superstitious. So, yeah, two of Germany's m- biggest and most infamous witch trials, which were at Würzburg and Bamberg, and I mentioned Bamberg in the book, mm. you probably remember, they happened during the Thirty Years' War. And so there's a direct connection between war and famine and plague and witch trials. Wow. It's really interesting because I guess they have to, you have to blame someone, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, and it, of course it would be the women, when uh, especially the older women, older women who weren't married and didn't have any male relatives were a target. They were easy prey, but they didn't have anybody to defend them. And red hair really was a sign of witchcraft uh, and devil, a connection with mm-hmm. the devil. But yeah, there was a lot for me to work with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about, bit more about Greta as she appears in the book. Obviously, we don't want spoilers, but whatever you can tell us about her as the main character. 
Yeah, she is about 23 when the book starts and she lives, still lives with her brother in their little house on the edge of the forest. She is a gingerbread baker. And she, which I love that. I made a little bit of stuff up and I, I made it that when the kids left the witch's house when they were children, she took the witch's recipe book, her grimoire. With yeah, her I love spot. that. Yeah, I, I had to add a little bit of something in there just to make the fairy tale connection tangible and to have something that was from the witch's house so that just for that link. So that was the witch's book. And so she bakes this gingerbread that is addictively delicious. It's this magical gingerbread that, it smells so good and it's like almost lures you towards it, this intoxicating gingerbread. And she sells that at the markets and at festivals, that kind of thing. And that's how she keeps money coming in because hands is pretty useless. As I said, she's got this amazing red hair, but to her, it's not amazing. She hates her hair because it's a mark of the devil and witchery. And yeah, she's a bit isolated and cast off from the rest of the village and quite lonely. Yeah. So you had a lot to work with in terms of having a character who goes on a journey of change, didn't you? Mm. you know? Yeah, absolutely. But the, and I really, that was something that I really looked at. She's how is she going to change throughout the book and how is she going to end up at the end of the book? And what is special about her? I, I'm interested in the fact in the fairy tale that it was the little girl that pushed the witch and saved the brother. It wasn't the boy, it was the girl. And I know that women would have done most of the chores and the housework and cooking in that, that time. And I understand that she probably put hands in the cage or Hansel in the cage because mm. she would have made the little girl help her around the house and whatever and cook. But I felt that was an opportunity to make Greta a little bit more special and a little bit more different. Like why was she treated differently to her brother? He was meant for eating, but she was, she was not, she was allowed to wander around the house and help and do things so that I found that a little opportunity to make Greta perhaps more interesting and different and there's something about her that is different and there's a reason that she's not fitting mm. in her society and then by the end of the book she knows why and yes. that's part of the story is her kind of getting over that shame and guilt and all the horrible stuff that happened to her as a kid and to stop blaming herself and maybe just loving herself a little bit which I think a lot of women have to go through that. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. That's what I mean about, I think you've done a really great job of kind of taking that universal story, like you say, it's contemporary, but it's also universal of a woman being mm -hmm. in a situation and then coming up against all these obstacles, which is what we do, of course, in fiction, and then just showing that, that change in her. So it could be a story of a woman now in a similar situation, just as it was a story in a fairy tale or a story back in 1600s. Yeah, and sometimes I people who aren't into fantasy are a bit dismissive and might say, oh, I don't read fantasy. I'm like, yeah, but maybe try it because it's not mm. just about fantasy, it's about people. Yeah, And at the end of the day, that's a good book is the kind of book that you read it because you want to see what happens to them and you worry about them. Yeah. And I think you can have that in any genre, in any kind of book. You know what I mean? I love books where I am so invested that I am so worried about them and and that's what keeps me turning the pages. So I'm happy that you said that. That's great mm. that you felt like that. We've talked a little bit about that historical time period in which it's written and obviously you must have done a lot of research into 
like you were talking about the 30 years war, but just daily life there for the people and what it was like. How hard was it to then blend the changes that you wanted to add into that historical time period? Did you find yourself resisting changing that, that history? How did you go about doing that? Most of the magic in the book was people believed in it, like it's folklore and superstition. So people believed that a witch or a, a wizard or whatever you want to call it, that kind of person, they could put a magic salve on a belt made of wolf skin or a wolf skin and put that on their bodies and they would turn into a wolf and they would run with the devil. Okay. So, so they were actual the, beliefs of the time. Yeah, yeah, I didn't make that up. There's a whole bunch of weird stuff in this book that I didn't make up that was real, that people believed. They believed in witches. They believed that there were people who changed their shape. They believed that bears were the devil's creature and would all the horrific stuff about bears that was true they the bear was very had a really bad reputation in early modern times it used to be revered so in medieval times bears were like gods bears were mm. a sign of nobility and strength and you'd have to go out and kill a bear to prove your manhood and all that sort of thing but by the time this story comes around lions had taken over as the sort of powerful wonderful interesting yeah if you look at emblems and heraldry and all that kind of thing by this time lions were the favorite and bears were in the bad books so i didn't have to that's all real i think there's some elements of um yeah the way that the village perceives the bear as being the devil's beast and it will lure you and it will all this weird stuff that was all historical i didn't know make any of that up and the shape-shifting came straight from history as well a lot of the witch stuff there's only a few things in there that I actually did make up to be honest with you it <laughs> must have been yeah. gold when you found all that out uh, it's funny because I did it at uni I found okay. I started the topic at, at Macquarie when I was doing my English degree and I did a lot of history as well and I did this amazing class called coming to modernity Europe from 1400 to 1800 and that was my first taste of the early modern period right and we did things like executions capital punishment witch hunts witch trials shape-shifting werewolves all of it and all of that stuff it's funny it's all ended up in my book yeah I really it was a really fascinating time and I really liked the early modern period too because it's that in-between period. It's not medieval, which feels sometimes a little bit distant and hard to, I find it's a little bit too far back, but that the early modern is wild enough and people still believed enough and that was old and superstitious enough that a lot of good stuff's happening, like narratively, not good yeah. stuff. It was appalling and you wouldn't want to live there. And then if you get further in, Towards the 1800s and the Industrial Revolution, people stop believing so much in superstition and religion and science becomes part of them. More rational, yeah. Yeah, like I, I think that those that kind of period flowing back into medieval and in the sort of 1700s too, there's a lot of opportunity there to dip into the really amazing historical things going on. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and there is a bit of a love story threaded through the story. Did you want to talk about that at all, Kel? Yeah, and that's funny because I didn't, I never pitched it as a romance. No. Uh, I don't, I, it's like a subplot. Yeah, I, it's an element of the stories. Element. It? But I love reading books that have a love story in them. I'm not opposed to that at all. Uh, yeah, and I really wanted something for Greta. She's 
lonely and no family and it's been a bit of a hard time. So I really wanted to have someone who would support her and see her for who she is. Like you say, it doesn't overshadow the rest of the story. It's still very much about her and her struggling with these kind of antagonistic forces that she has against her in society. And that kind of comes in as part of it, but it's not overwhelming. Yeah, it gets woven into the story, I think, so that it's their part of it and it hopefully will raise those stakes more. Like I was was thinking about raising stakes and so that seemed a good way to make that sort of second half of the book more exciting and have something else to worry about because that's what you want to do isn't it like you want to make the readers worry yeah and like you say you've got to raise the stakes and you've got to make things harder for your characters and I think sometimes a lot of early writers resist that because like you say you want what's best for Gretel and you wanted to end up in a good place but sometimes doing the hard stuff to them along the way can be really quite challenging can't it yeah and and that's what I think makes a book really fun to read oh my god look how much we all loved game of thrones terrible terrible things happening to those characters but you couldn't look away i love those books yeah Um, yeah. so i was thinking that would be another way to up the stake to add another sort of fairy tale in as well i remember early in the process thinking hansel and gretel probably doesn't have enough to stand on its own as just a hansel and gretel retelling it's going to need some other characters and it's going to need some other some other part of the story and so that's why I I ended up choosing two other fairy tales as well and I won't say much about them because Mm. it's it's nice if you're into fairy tales when you read books like that and you pick them up it's like like finding easter eggs yeah you get the surprise yeah yeah if you if you like fairy tales you'll probably start to notice them straight away but yeah and it just gave a way to weave those other tales through add some different little subplots and hopefully raise those stakes yeah What would you say your favourite part of writing the book was? Your favourite part of the process in the book? Some people love the early stages where they're not even Mm -hmm. writing and they're just creating. Some people love the drafting. Some love the revisions. What is it for you? What's your favourite part? I love it when you get your editorial letter and your edits back on that structural edit, that really big, chunky powerful editing where you really get that structure down I love that that's where I feel like it's where you see a lot of progress Um, I'm waiting to get my edits back on my second book at the moment and I'm really excited because I know that there's parts of it that are rubbish (laughs) I'm like oh I can't wait to get in there and fix that and make it better and see how I can make it beautiful and I I really only think about who I have to get it back to at that time like I I thinking that'll be my publisher and my agent and really try and fix it so that it's best. I'm not afraid of the work. I really mm. like the work. I'll, I would keep going on after the forest now, Pam. I'm shocking. I really, I don't know if it's healthy. It's probably a really unhealthy <laughs> But yeah, I like the edits. Yeah, me too. I like the revision. I like seeing, like you say, that improvement in it. And Oh, yeah. yeah. I hate the first draft. I realised I really don't like the first draft. It just feels like you're writing vomit, like rubbish. Mm-hmm. And you're so you've got to get to that, that length and it just feels like a really hard thing. But once you have the book, it's great because you can fix it and mould it and shape it and make it great and get people to help you. Oh, yeah. what do you think? Even just having an editor is such a gift. Yes. Yeah. Would you say that's the most challenging part for you, the draft, that first drafting part? It was for my second book. 
I don't remember it being as hard with After the Forest, but I didn't have any deadline then or pressure. So I think that was more about working through the, it's not just a hobby that I do in my spare time now, it's actually mm. a job now. So I think that's probably why I got a little bit frozen, like a little bit stage struck. I think what that it, happens to a lot of people. Yeah, that's that makes me so much happier to hear you say that too because mm. that's the impression I'm getting is that it's not easy. The second book's not easy because also in the back of your head, it's the back of your mind, you're thinking, can I even do this again? You've spent a long time generally <laughs> on the first one, haven't you? And it's had a long evolution and you haven't had those pressures of the deadline and giving it to other people until right at the end. And then suddenly it's, we want another book. When can you have it ready? You've got a year or you've got two years or whatever. And it's, oh, oh I think my that's God. a big part of that pressure that happens with the second novel. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know, maybe I hated the first draft this time because I was worried that it wasn't good. I think you have to let yourself just write rubbish for the first draft, don't you? Like it's not most of it's crap. And I was having trouble with that because I was worried about not being any good. That little voice always telling you that you're not good enough and that it's terrible and what are you doing? And they're going to see that you're actually hopeless and why did they even give you this deal? Like that little voice, right? So maybe that first draft was hard because of that. I don't know. But I, I definitely prefer editing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So with the second book, Kel, like this would have been quite a different process for you, I imagine. And obviously you've got an agent and you've got your publisher and editors through them. Mm. You had the mentorship with Kate and a whole variety of different things that you did with that first one. Has it been like a super different process for you this second time around in actually getting that draft down? Is it something that you already had? in the pipeline or was it something completely new that you were starting? I'd been working on this one for a while because it was a two book deal. So when we pitched after the forest, my agent, Julie had already said, so what else are you working on? And I said, I've got a couple of things and one of them is this book. And so she went, yeah, that's the one. So then she pitched that to Tor and we already knew that this was what the next book was going to be. This was what the fairy tale was going to right. be and it's going to be. So I knew that from 2020 and I'd already been working and thinking about it and just jotting down things for it before then. Yeah. Because I got some more good advice from Kate and she said, when you start pitching, when you start submitting to agents and publishers, have something else up your sleeve so that if they say to you, what are you working on next? You can say, I'm working on this and you mm-hmm. can get access. And you can show that you can work and produce more than one book. So luckily, yeah, luckily I had got that ready. So when I was getting After the Forest ready, I also had a synopsis. So if anybody asked me, yeah, this is what I'm working on, it's what I want to do. So I already had, this was the book that I'd already had. and, And yeah, I knew and I'd had time to think about it. But then it was my first time of even editing and going through all of that. And because there has, I have different, three different publishers, there was different lots to do yeah. for After the Forest in each territory. And so there was quite a bit of work. And I felt like the second book was almost like the neglected second child. <laughs> it hasn't had as much time and love. Yeah. But it's getting it now. So yeah. I think it'll oh, be good. okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's getting used to the whole thing. Yeah. Like you say, I guess you've got, which a lot of people don't have on that first experience, you've got three different publishers that you're dealing with. And in fact, I wanted to talk to you. I'm just going to do a little screen share for the people who are watching on YouTube. Here we are. So 
Here's your three different beautiful covers and your website is absolutely gorgeous, Kel, and it's so on brand, like amazing. Thanks. I worked really hard on it. <laughs> did you do it yourself? I did, yeah. Oh, it's lovely. It's beautiful. <laughs> Thanks. So highly recommend everyone have a look at that. So if you're listening on the podcast, pop on to um, Kel's website and have a look at the three different book covers for the US, the UK and Australia. They're all quite different. Mm. So that must have been a really interesting process, getting getting the covers sent to you. And then did you have much say in, in what any of the covers looked like or how did that whole conversation work with each of the publishers? Yeah, they were all different. We started the tour, like the American was the first cab off the rank and they they really wanted something that would stand out and be different. They didn't want it to be too dark. I think they were very amazing. Right. Like in, I, they asked me my thoughts. We talked about designers. I got to have a look at different artists, and that's really exciting. So, oh, we're sen- sending you through this potential artist. What do you think of their work? And you get to have a look and a think, and it's just great and exciting. So I had quite a bit of a say with tour with the US cover, and I really love it. I think it's really unusual. Like I, I really, yeah, it's very clever. I. Mm. They, the, it's got lots of different guys. elements in it. Each time you look at it, this you notice another little little piece of the puzzle. Yeah. In earlier versions, there was blood dripping off the hand and it was a little bit, I, it was a little bit scary. Blood and just toned it down a little bit. And yeah, I really loved that. That was designed by Andrew Davis, who's a UK-based designer. Yeah. And he co-designed uh, the Australian cover. So he okay. got to work on the book twice, which was lovely. So he did the, the, the Australian cover and um, HarperCollins had a really, Harper Voyager had a really strong view of what they wanted. And so I pretty much just let them go for it. And I knew Andrew was doing the cover too. So we talked about what I wanted, I, about how something with botanicals and something mm. with red hair. I really wanted red hair on the cover, which I got all three of them. Yeah. Red hair, botanicals, foxes and wolves and a bear and that sort of, um, magical fairy tale feeling and so that's the direction that Harper Collins went and Andrew it was really interesting I actually emailed him and said oh my god you're working on the book again what do you but the brief was really different like the two covers that he's done I think are quite different I think he enjoyed that process and the UK went for a much more I think more and more rom- romantic serial almost isn't it and yeah. that element of mystery it's really pretty I, every time I look at them I like a different one each time yeah, no, they're all beautiful in their own way. Yeah, I think so too. I like them all. It's just... how lucky are you to have three beautiful covers for your one book? I know. <laughs> and I'm, it's very, I'm very lucky. I'm still pinching myself about all of this. I really am. <laughs> Which leads me to my next question, Kel. Like you, you've you've gotten through that writing process, and you're now getting into the period where it's almost launch time, and you've had to do some social media. How are you finding all that business side of things? There's a lot of it, actually. That's something I really have to work on, just getting used to that. I think having it owning your own business, which my husband has done for his entire life pretty much. And he used to say to me, you can never switch it off. There's always, it's always something that needs to be done in the back of your head. And I understand what he means now because I have trouble switching off. But I really like doing all the socials and 
there's just a lot to do because everything I'm doing is done three three different times, even the time zones. So I made myself a little thing that had what the time is in the UK and like trying to find the, when I should be posting things and how to time everything. And also I'm really wary of like annoying everybody in my Instagram feed by it's always look at me all the time. Like I don't want to be that person. <laughs> I know, but I think you have to be because you have to remember too that not everybody sees everything you post. Yeah, that's true. So while you feel that you're bombarding people with it, not everyone's going to see it. People are also excited to see you at launch time and they're happy to see your numerous yeah. posts. So keep going. Well, I like seeing the, the posts. It's a real countdown, isn't it? There's that real feeling of, oh, it's only two weeks and it's only a week and it's incredibly exciting. I, I like watching when other people do it too. So, yeah, I'll have to just get over that. But I have started scheduling posts to go out at 2 a.m. And I've noticed that I'm now getting, when I get feedback on Meta, it's saying, this is the best time of day for you to post and it's 2 a.m. Right. So there's, obviously I've been doing it more at that time, but also hopefully it's getting seen more when I'm asleep, which is just the weirdest thing. It's selling books in your sleep. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And how Um, are you finding fitting all this in? Everything that you're doing with your kind of home life and your family life, because it's a big change. Like you were saying, it's now your job and yeah, you've yeah. got everything else to do, of course, as well. Yeah. Luckily, my children are in high school now. My sons don't really want to talk to me very much. Oh, that makes it handy. Yes. <laughs> it's good timing in that respect. They're ones in year eight and ones in year 11 about to start year 12. So they have their own lives and they're also quite autonomous, which is really nice. Because this would have been really hard when the kids were, if I did this when my kids were little. Hats off to all those writers who do this with tiny people coming into their office and and needing them. I think that's Mm -hmm. amazing. It's a a real juggle. And I only work part-time outside of this now too. So I I work two days a week um, outside of a day job in a museum, which is great. I really like my day job. Right. Yeah, it's busy. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I work seven days a week, <laughs> but I don't think it's any more busy than any other author who has a family and a part-time job and commitments. Yeah. I'm very grateful. It's how I'm happy. This is what I dreamed of. Living the dream. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Kel, okay, well, I'm going to let you go because we've been chatting for a while, but just before you go, a couple of things. What advice would you give to people who are out there maybe working on their first manuscript and keen to find a publisher and to get it out into the world. Is there any kind of bits of advice that you think are really important things for them to remember or to take into consideration? Yeah, I would say don't give it to your friends and family to read. (laughs) Just Mm. try and get it in the hands of someone who knows, like a publishing professional or a, a teacher, a writing teacher, a creative writing teacher, another author, if you can get a mentorship or if you can pay for a manuscript assessment. And do that when you've got the book to the point where you think you can't do anything else with it. You've done several drafts and you just think, I can't physically do anything more. I need somebody else's opinion on this. I wouldn't give it to friends and family. I don't think that's a good idea. I just don't think they know really how to help you unless they are a publishing expert or an author. Mm. And um, sometimes it can be really awkward when they don't like the work and they have to lie and you know they're lying. And yeah, so I would just try and get really good feedback mm. and that might mean saving up a little bit and getting paying for someone through the all the australian writer center australian writer center and asa australian society ASA. yeah yeah and also when you get that feedback do what they say listen to them 
because people are experts and professionals for a reason. And if they tell you that there's something about your manuscript that needs fixing or isn't quite working, uh, just do the work, I would say. Just take it on board and do the work because I think that's how you get it into a good place. And go to classes, learn, read. (laughs) And never stop. There's always more to learn, isn't there? Yeah, always. Always. Yeah, I still go to writing classes. Mm. I I love them. I just like listening and learning about writing. It's fascinating. (laughs) <laughs> and yeah, do the podcast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you learn. I learn something from everybody that I speak to, which is fantastic. Oh, that's great, Kill. The question I often like to end the podcast with is, "What would you say is at the heart of your writing?" Ah, oh, the heart of my writing. Probably that I want to make you escape and disappear into another world like I I'm all about escapism I read to disappear and escape into something else like I it's entertainment I suppose in a way but I and also that like beauty and whimsy and darkness that's probably at the heart of my writing when I write I like to disappear into the beauty and the whimsy and the darkness and I hope that whoever's reading the book will also disappear as well and get immersed in that sort of other world that kind of magical world that's why i read too yes it's that that escapism you certainly do that in after the forest so congratulations because you've achieved that and can't wait for the next one are we allowed to know what fairy tale the next one is based on or is that a little i have i can't say much about it but i can briefly say that it is about a fairy tale character who wishes that she had legs and not a shiny silvery tail okay we're going to the sea. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Love it. Love it. <laughs> Cannot wait. Okay, where can people find you on social media? Yes, I'm at Kel in the Woods on Instagram and Twitter or X. Which, and I'm at Kel Woods author on Facebook. I'm most active on Instagram, so that's probably where you'll see more. And I have a website that has all of the details yeah. as well. And that's kelwoods.com. Dot au. Dot yeah. au. Yeah, was great. Yeah. yeah. Now this is probably going to be coming out around launch time. So are there any kind of launch events if people are interested in coming along or, or any book events that you're doing in the next month or two? Yeah. So there'll be a launch in Husky. There's no tickets available yet. It hasn't been put online yet, but I am doing a launch at Kinakunya in the city on the 10th of October. I think that's a Tuesday night and I'll be in conversation with Kate Forsyth. So that will be fun. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to put that one in my diary. Oh, lovely. So yeah, if anybody wants to come along and celebrate, that would be amazing. Oh, lovely. Yeah. That's the main one. I'm doing an an event at Better Red Than Dead with Lauren Chater as well. Oh, great. We're doing an afternoon tea at Better Red Than Dead. Oh, good on you. (laughs) So excited for you. And yeah, highly recommend everybody get out there and grab a copy of the book. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Kel. All the best with the next one and can't wait to see you at one of your launches. Great. I can't wait to see you too, Pam. Thank you so much for having me on and supporting the book. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts 
so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon, and you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>